This is Larry H. Russell thanking you once again for downloading another edition of Celtic Speed. Today's presenting sponsor is the leading organic meat brand in the country, American Farmers Network. AFN's meats are produced by the network of small family farmers who are committed to the most natural and compassionate approach to ranching. With production standards that go beyond even USDA regulations, all of their certified organic beef is 100% grass-fed. From poultry to pork to coarse beef, get the most nutritious and delicious meat at www.americanfarmersnetwork.com. Today is Sunday, October 2nd, 2016. This is Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio. I am Jared Weiss, host of the Garter Report postgame show on CLNS Radio and Celtics Blog, and I'm filling in this week for Larry H. Russell. So if you're filling in for Larry H. Russell, you got some big shoes to fill. So I decided to bring on Marcus Smart to the Celtics Beat podcast. We're going to sit down for a conversation about the reclamation of Marcus, Marcus's jump shot. It's obviously his biggest glaring weakness. He has so much to work on there. He was the worst three-point shooter in the NBA last year, and he has done so much this offseason to try to fix that shot. And we saw in Friday's scrimmage that he really has made a lot of progress. So we're going to go in detail talking about what he has done to work on fixing his jump shot. And when you're done listening to this podcast, you can head over to the Celtics blog where I did an in-depth film analysis of Marcus's changes to his shot that he's trying to make, looking at what the issues were last year, describing and showing the changes that he's making this year. So go over to Celtics blog for that. But first, we're going to sit down with Michael Pina of Bleacher Report, who is this, their new Celtics full-time beat writer who is covering the team in a unique way. And we're going to talk about the way he's covering the team. We're going to talk about his interactions and so, both of our stories about interacting with Kobe Bryant in his wild final season with the Lakers. Michael's been covering the Lakers for Bleacher Report full-time and is now coming over to cover the Celtics. So we'll have lots of great stuff in that conversation, including Al Horford and Isaiah Thomas, how they're going to work together, how Al will change the offense, kind of X's and O's, going through what will change with the way that this offense can function with Horford on board. Of course, talking about Mark Marcus Smart and Terry Rozier running the second unit, and then how Brad Stevens will have to manage his lineups, different ways that he can do substitutions, different combinations, all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, So coming up on episode number 177 of Celtics Beat, which this week is being brought to you by Blue Apron. So head on over to blueapron.com slash Celtics Beat for three free meals. Say that three times fast and free shipping on your first order, and of course, AmericanFarmersNetwork.com. And you can find Michael on Twitter at MichaelVPina, and you can find me on Twitter at JaredWeissNBA. So let's talk to Michael Pina, the newest Celtics beat writer for Bleacher Report. So you're back in town. Last time you were here, you were covering the Celtics for Celtics Hub on True Hoop Network. And then we actually, we worked together at WEI for a very brief period of time. Very brief. The uh, Out of Bounds, the, the competitor to Barstool Sports that never quite made it. But we, we had a good team there. I remember we put together like one or two pieces, and then you moved to L.A., and the whole thing fell apart. As one would expect it Not to Not surprisingly. Yeah. So you go to L.A., and you, you're writing for Fox Sports, uh, you're writing for Vice, but you're covering the Lakers for Bleach Report. So before we even talk about the Celtics, I want to know what it's like covering the Lakers because it is a pretty wild experience, especially last year, Kobe's last year, you're basically following a circus around the country. 
Yeah, it was very interesting. So first of all, I would cover all the home games and I would go to all the practices. And as you said, it being Kobe's last year, that was the number one theme throughout the whole year. Um, him after games, uh, he didn't really practice at all. So that was kind of a bummer. But every practice, all the questions were about Kobe. Um, Byron Scott, all he talked about was really was Kobe. Uh, so, uh, obviously the team was atrocious. It was a mess on the court. Uh, they were trying to rebuild at the same time as they were saying goodbye to one of the best players in their franchise's history. Uh, so it was tough, obviously, for them. Uh, it seems like they're on a pretty good path right now, though, with Walton replacing Byron Scott. Uh, D'Angelo Russell, Brandon Ingram, they got to keep their draft pick because they were so bad last year, so that was positive. Uh, but it was it was a fun experience. It was my first time really covering a team day in, day out, so it was good. It was pretty cool. What, what was it? What was the condition of, kind of the, like, the climate as far as the tension within the locker room? Because it seemed like there were a lot of events that spiked tension. And then just the, the kind of the, the mood that's set when you enter the arena, when you go through all the media availability during the games, all that kind of stuff. Because it seems like the Celtics and the Lakers have two very different climates surrounding the team. Um, are you referencing, you know, the Nick Young, D'Angelo Russell, that type of That'd thing? That'd be one of the things, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I didn't really pick up on too much awkwardness uh, among the players. That was That incident was... You know, it was, I think there were like, it was in the last month of the season. Uh, but leading up to it, obviously, the team was very young. Uh, one might call them a little immature. And I don't think they responded too well to Byron Scott's coaching methods. Uh, he was kind of a hard ass. And, you know, D'Angelo Russell, Jordan Clarkson, um, I don't think these guys really responded too well to that. And they didn't really ever learn the defensive schemes that he wanted or run the right offense. So I think that factored in for sure. Um, I wouldn't even know where to begin with describing their culture last year besides like Kobe Bryant and dysfunction. <laughs> like that was, cult. there was no culture at all. Is that really, are those two isolated things? Does it seem like Kobe kind of created the chaos around him, but he could, when he's, once he's off the court, he can step out of that chaos and let it kind of take place? Kobe, it didn't really seem like he was on the team, to be honest. I mean, as I said, he didn't really practice at all. Or the team wasn't on him, more to speak. <laughs> sure. And he would just kind of, well, he would hijack the offense. Uh, he wouldn't play any defense. And I don't really blame him for that. It was his last year, you know. Did what he had to do. He, I'm sure he had a lot of fun. He was in a great mood after every game, even when they lost by 20, 30 points. Um, well, he said that. He basically said winning absolutely doesn't mean anything this year. It's all about just. It's all about the tour. It's, it's all about, about the, the tour. And you know, uh, it would have been nice if it was all about you know developing the youngsters and putting them in the best situation. I don't necessarily think him shooting 25 times a night and not really passing the ball and. Um, kind of dictating, dictating this ISO-heavy offense um, that definitely didn't help anybody get better, I don't think. Uh, so, yeah, uh, having Kobe kind of, um, his, he's his own aura, if you will. Um, and I don't think the youngsters really, it, it was not your typical NBA season. And it was a very strange experience for them, I'm sure. 
What about that final game? That's that's one of the most iconic games, especially regular season games of my lifetime. I'll never ever forget that game. So it was completely meaningless, of course. No, man. The, the result no, of the game was meaningless. I mean, so, so much of that night was a dream. I still, months later, do not understand it at all. Um, the Lakers were kind enough to sit me third row off the floor for it. And I, you know, that was all anyone in Los Angeles was talking about for weeks. I mean, those third row seats must have cost like $20,000 on StubHub. Yeah. So there were, there was about, um, I want to say it was in the second to last timeout or the the Lakers were down the whole game really. And uh, they were mounting a comeback. Kobe was going nuts in the last uh, three, four minutes. There was about two minutes left in the game. There was a timeout and... Uh, a Kanye song is playing over the in the stadium over the speaker system, and um, I look behind me, and everyone is standing in the whole arena. I look behind me, and Kanye is sitting like behind me, and I'm like, I have better seats to Kobe's last game than Kanye West. This is a dream, and you know, I'm also looking around. There were media members who, I mean, it was dusty. Like media members were crying. Uh, after his press conference, um, post-game press conference, he got a standing ovation from the media, which was, it was just surreal. You don't, it's, it, I can't ever imagine anything like that ever happening again. It's funny, I was there for like a lot of the final moments for a lot of great players like the Big Three with the Celtics, all that stuff. There was never anything like a standing ovation. That's, I can't believe that. That's pretty shocking. I mean, that's the first thing you learn also. like I know he was very important uh in terms of their organizational success, in the history of the city, uh, Kobe owns LA. But the first thing you learn in like journalism school or whatever, journalism 101, is you don't like clap in the press box. <laughs> <laughs> Just a standing ovation for this guy. It was it was amazing. I mean, I I remember when KG said like goodbye to the Celtics. I I got a little bit misty because I I grew up. I grew up on the guy. I mean, I was a Celtics fan when I was growing up. I was there when they won the title. I could hear him yelling, anything is possible, from the stands, all that stuff. You know, the, what, was diff- what made me emotional was just seeing how impactful he was on my life back when I was a fan, when I was a child growing up, or I guess when I was really 18 years old, but I think I was a child until I was about 24. Um, and then also when I developed as a reporter and got my feet wet just – Interacting with him, and I wrote, I wrote about this in a column when he retired on Celtics blog, was interacting with him was unlike any interaction with a human being I'd ever experienced before. The intensity of the conversation, the intensity of a conversation with, like, with Kevin Garnett, it's like as if you have a gun pointed at your head. You like feel the level of adrenaline rush that you would feel if someone was like mugging you or something like that. Because Kevin just, he carried that level of intensity. And Kobe is one of those other guys that he interacted with that you felt an adrenaline rush and you felt some sort of aura existing around you in this conversation. Like you step into Kobe's bubble and you're surrounded by his charisma. The fact that when you ask him a question, it's almost, you feel like he's controlling your mind to ask that question to him. (laughs) And then he gives you the answer to the question and you want that answer, even if it's not the answer you wanted. You know, with Kobe, so much about him was... It was kind of ridiculous, but it was also, like you said, it was not... It, seeing him in person, even in the middle of the season, was strange. And he had a camera crew 
documenting his final season. So when he would walk through, I remember there was one game, before the games, you know, players, reporters are in the locker room. Players usually avoid the locker room for pregame media availability. They're in the training room, they're wherever. So this one time, uh, Kobe walked through and did not hold the door for his, you know, there's like a guy with a boom mic, a guy with a, a camera following him everywhere. He doesn't hold the door for the guy, so the, the door slams on the guys, and he's just, he's just like strolling through the locker room. Everyone in the locker room is just like stopped. It felt like everyone stopped talking, and just all eyes were on him as he strolled through in his sandals. And so the camera guys are like, uh, in a mad rush to keep up with them and he's just pretending like they're not there and they're not documenting every one of his steps throughout the whole season and it was so that was hilarious um one real quick thing about kg i've never interacted with kg um partially because uh yes i am scared of him as well uh but it's very tough the first time it's it's incredibly intimidating the uh First game of the season last year, the Minnesota Timberwolves were in town, and uh, I had to uh, write a column about how the Timberwolves were uh, kind of responding or dealing with the death of Flip Saunders. This was a few days after he passed away. And I remember I was in the UCLA, I was at UCLA uh, in this huge gym. And I was talking to Carl Towns. A few reporters were off to the side. Some were talking to Rubio, Zach Levine. Uh, Players were meeting with the media. And I look over, and KG is far. There's two courts side side by side, or three courts side by side by side. And he's in the far corner. You could see him still sweating. He's sweating, shooting jump shots. There was one assistant coach was rebounding for him, and it was like no one is going to talk to him right now. But the fact that this dude is just like still so intense, doing his thing over there, um, it was amazing to watch because I mean they just had a, a pretty intense practice and everything, and he's not a human being. No, he's he was some sort of creature born out of the big. I think he's like material left over from the Big Bang. That took human form. Fair statement. That's the only Fair explanation. Okay, I want to. We got to get in the Celtics talk, but I want to reverse back because I actually have a Kobe story building off of your last one. So we were filming my post game show, The Garden Report, one night uh, or one night, the night after Kobe's final game, and I noticed in my peripheral vision there's a camera pointed at me, not one of my cameras, and I was like, "What the hell is going on?" So after we and we noticed the guy, he starts to walk behind our set and was filming. He's like almost walking onto the set, and then the boom mic comes out. And another guy standing with a clipboard, like, what is going on? And after we finally cut and, and wrap filming, they come out and they ask us, we're filming the documentary for Kobe's final season. Can you guys just can you guys just keep going and we'll just keep filming you? And we ended up doing like half an hour, like reflecting on Kobe and stuff like that. It was really we were just in the even after we stopped filming, we were in the middle of a conversation about Kobe, just reflecting on it. And they must have filmed us for like forty five minutes or something like that. And they say we're going to be in the movie. I have no idea when it's coming out. You or better any of that be. Stuff. I, I hope hung so. Around for an extra forty five minutes. But the most interesting part was that it turned out the director was is Sanjay Gupta's son, Doctor Sanjay Gupta's son. Wow, I did yeah. not know that. It's like a small world, yeah. So that's pretty fascinating. So 
so yeah, look out in theaters whenever. I I think it's supposed to be coming out on Christmas originally, but I have no idea what's coming out. But you get to see my beautiful mug in that one. So all right, now let's talk about the current Boston Celtics. Um, we just had media day earlier in the week. The Celtics are doing training camp now. Open practice is happening. The team is building up. Uh, Al Horford is in Boston, and it really did happen, and it wasn't a joke, and it wasn't a fluke. Uh, the Celtics look really good. They're projected to be either the second or third seed in the Eastern Conference right now. Coming coming in fresh from a team that was broken into a team that's on the rise. How are you, as someone that's coming into the Celtics season with kind of fresh eyes in your analysis, seeing the team as far as its potential to really improve upon last year's results? Well, I think the Celtics were a very good team last year. We'll start right there. Um, and I think they've overachieved uh, in just about every season, you could say, that Brad Stevens has been around. Um, I think that they will be, I would expect them to finish uh, second in the Eastern Conference this season. I think they're better than the Toronto Raptors. Uh, I think when you factor in the continuity uh, all, uh, so many of the players are returning. Uh, Evan Turner's gone. Jared Sellinger's gone. Basically, everybody else is back. Uh, and when you look at the style of play um, uh, that they deploy, it's a lot of... Uh, it's pass-happy. It's uh, You catch a pass, you make a decision very quickly. And you can't really run systems like that with players who don't know each other. So it's wonderful that these guys know one another, know each other's tendencies. And they're bringing in, the guy they're bringing in isn't just any star. It's a, it's a pass-first, unselfish, big man, doesn't care about numbers, played in a very similar system the past few years, had a lot of success in it. Uh, I think he will improve them defensively. Last year they were uh, top five defense in the NBA without any real rim protection, which is tremendous. Uh, so I think that, you know, at media day, no one really wanted to put a number on anything with regards to win totals. And by no one, I mean Brad Stevens and Danny <laughs> Ainge. Because <laughs> um, that wasn't completely true. Yeah, exactly. We'll get to that in a sec. Um, but I think that they... They should be definitely be looking to win a playoff series. I think the conference finals are uh, definitely a possibility. And I also think that when you talk about the Celtics right now, you, it's, it, it, this team is not, the roster is not set in stone. So you have um, so many assets. You have, um, I think they will be active as any team before the trade deadline. And I think it's up to Danny Ainge to try to balance making the team better in the short term and the long term while also not disrupting the continuity, as I talked about and how important that is. All right, so let's save, let's save the spring for later. Let's focus on the, getting off to a good start for this team. So first off, maybe my favorite thing that happened at Media Day was when Brad was asked that question, how many wins are you expecting which not really don't think it's a good question, but uh, and he's like don't like we don't want to and he gave a really great answer about his philosophy on it, which is that we don't want to set some sort of bar because once you hit that goal, you no longer have the you not no longer have the necessary push. Yeah. yeah, 
And then Jay Crowder was asked, and he's like, oh, yeah, we just want to get out of the first round, and that would be success. <laughs> I was like, no, Jay, did you hear what the coach said? Come on, man, stick to the script. Which is true, obviously. Like, they want – that would be a nice measure of success because regardless of the legitimate reasons why they couldn't win their – get out of the first round the last two years, Cleveland, that was an obvious one. They were significantly overmatched, and they were, they were a de novo franchise at that point. Uh, and then last year – Injuries completely just destroyed them. They lost three of their core seven rotation players. And with Jay Crowder reiterated, which thankfully he's finally confirmed, so people will stop telling me that I'm not right about it. Jay Crowder was completely injured and couldn't really function. Couldn't hit a shot really for the last two months of the season. Was completely injured and couldn't really function in that Hawk series. Despite the fact that he played, he, he was not helping the team because he was so hurt. Although he, he played pretty admirably, admirably for someone who was playing on one ankle. Um, so they, they, I think they probably would have beat the Hawks last year if they were at full strength. But you can't really say that because it didn't happen, right? So for them to, I think for Jay to feel that getting out of the first round is like their goal. Or is that that's how they define that the season is successful? I think that just defines that they can prove to themselves how good they were last year. But for them, they need to get to the conference finals and have a good series against Cleveland or, of course, whomever it could be. But it's hard to imagine it not being Cleveland. Although, of course, if they can't get J.R. Smith to resign, who knows if they can even make it to the playoffs. But if if they don't get to the Eastern Conference and have a competitive series against Cleveland, I would say that they're probably not living up to the pretty clear, reasonable potential of the team that they have at the outset of the season. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And... Um... They really. This is the kind of a point uh, in their rebuild cycle where you can't plateau because uh, free agents are. I mean, we're, we're heading heading into this off season. They will have a, enough uh, cap space to afford a max free agent again. And you know, it's funny. Like if. Um, they beat the Hawks and the Warriors beat the Cavs last year. Very good chance Kevin Durant picks the Celtics. Um, so there are free agents in this in this summer's class who are going to uh, look at the Celtics and if they uh, improve and get better, then obviously they're a more serious destination. If players like Marcus Smart and Terry Rozier um, get better and show um, legitimate development. Uh, I think that that's a sign of um, player development, the coaching staff, um, and just the um, positive culture that the Celtics have and the momentum that they have as as an organization. Um, So I totally understand Brad Stevens saying that he doesn't want to put a number on anything or or label expectations, but for sure, I mean, this team is good enough to, especially when you look at everybody else in the East, no disrespect to the Toronto Raptors, um, or the Charlotte Hornets, or anybody else, but I think that the Boston Celtics uh, should be viewed as the second best team, and they should have a uh, playoff series against the Cleveland Cavaliers. All right, that's a good place to go to commercial. Let's pay the bills, and we'll be right back with Michael Pina. The workers who have succeeded in this new economy are those who know how to decide for themselves how to spend their time and allocate their energy. They understand how to set goals, 
prioritize tasks, and make choices about which projects to pursue. People who know how to self-motivate, according to studies, earn more money than their peers, report higher levels of happiness, and say they are more satisfied with their families, jobs, and lives. The preceding excerpt is from Charles Duhigg's The Power of Habit audiobook, published by Random House Audio. Audible is the leading source of audiobooks online, and to get a free 30-day trial to get access to great books such as this, log on to audiblepodcast.com slash Celtics. Hey, this is Larry H. Russell here, critically acclaimed author and host of Celtics Beat, and I'm privileged to be joined by Daryl Conant, former U.S. Olympic Committee strength coach and one of the leading strength and condition specialists in America. Daryl, thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here, Larry. Thank you. Daryl, you're a student of the legendary bodybuilder Vince Gironda. Tell me a bit more about Vince. Vince Gironda was considered the pioneer of pure natural bodybuilding. His training methods and nutritional concepts are still being incorporated in many gyms throughout the world today, and I had the privilege myself of having him as my mentor. How can we learn more about the methods of the Iron Guru? As a student of Vince Gironda, I always wanted to give back to Vince in some way. I wrote a book entitled Invincible that depicts many of Vince's programs and nutritional theories that he taught me. For more information on this book, folks can visit my website at www.darylcurrent.com. Daryl, Vince had so many methods and ideas for achieving optimal health. Care to share any while we're here? One of Vince's most popular nutritional concepts was his recommendation of eating organic, grass-fed beef to build muscle. Organic red meat is loaded with nutrients necessary for building quality muscle. As Vince would always say to me, you must eat the type of food that the muscle is made out of, red meat. Get on that path of effortless fat loss and optimal health by following the appropriate nutritional methods. And get it from the country's leading organic meat brand, American Farmers Network at AmericanFarmersNetwork.com. Smart can be that guy. I also think what might be a little bit overlooked is the impact Al Horford has. Uh, I talked a little bit before about his unselfishness and his pass-first nature. I think for a guy like Marcus Smart to run pick-and-rolls with a guy like Horford who can pop, who can roll, uh, who can roll and make quick decisions on the move, will be tremendous for uh, Smart's development. Because something that we overlook a little bit as fans or observers is when you are young and you are trying to get better and improve, it's a lot easier to do so when the players around you are already good. And Smart, you know, the Celtics, there's two best players last year were 5'9", Isaiah Thomas, nothing against him for being short. And Jay Crowder. So obviously the talent level needs to improve. And I think Al Horford is, a, is obviously a huge improvement there as a four-time All-Star. And I think he will help uh, make life easier for guys like Marcus Smart. You know, I don't think that's really talked about enough is specifically Horford. Because they had Solinger last year, who, who has a lot of similarities to Horford. I mean, like their, their, their skill sets are kind of a similar design. Just Horford is... Yeah, it's it's like you it's like taking a ton of steroids uh, with Jared Slinger's skill set. I mean, he's significantly more uh, capable and talented and better conditioning, uh, but he gives them a second passing attack when they run a pick and roll or a pick and pop. That's not necessarily for the shot. That's not so, that's really just to try to advance the ball into a better position. Because if you're running a pick and roll with Al Horford and you slip him that pass, 
he's put he's grabbing the ball and he's immediately throwing it over his head and looking to three different you got two shorter shooters in the corner you got another guy on the elbow he sees all of it and he can whip those passes and soldier is a pretty decent passer on the pick and roll he's a good passer out of the post but horford you're talking about one of the the best big man passers of his generation and that's going to give them another that's going to give them another p- passing angle that they didn't really have so much last year no not a lot of teams do and um Another great attribute of Horford is for a guy who holds the ball and touches the ball as much as he does, he doesn't turn it over, which is a huge, uh, a huge part of having success on offense, obviously, is not giving the ball to the other team. Just getting a shot up at the basket, uh, obviously, as opposed to not getting a shot up at the basket, <laughs> increases your chances of I think I points on the board. I think I follow yeah, you. This is really deep analytics stuff right now. Um, so I think that's a huge part of it because, you know, guys, you know, just an example out of thin air, I think DeMarcus Cousins is, he has good passing instincts, but sometimes he tries to thread needles that have no business being thread and he turns the ball over a ton and that really hurts the offense. So yeah, Al Horford's, um, ability not to turn the ball over, um, uh, his, uh, knowledge and intelligence with regards to knowing where everybody is on the floor at all times is a huge asset. And when teams trap uh, Isaiah Thomas in the pick and roll, mm-hmm. or they probably won't trap Marcus Smart, but when they trap Isaiah Thomas and he slips in the ball, then you have the same four on three that the Golden State Warriors have kind of popularized with Draymond Green and Steph Curry. That's um, obviously not on that level, really. Because uh, Steph Curry is Steph Curry, and their offense is on a completely different planet. Uh, but even though the Celtics didn't hit really enough, in my opinion, uh, open threes last season, I think Al Horford uh, creates those shots, and if need be, he can finish as well. All right, so let's wrap this up by figuring out what the lineup's going to be. So let's look at opening night and then we can kind of reconsider later because Kelly Olynyk's health is obviously an issue and Gerald Green is a little has a bit of a boo-boo right now but we're assuming it's not going to really hamper his availability come regular season time in about a month so starting lineup at the jump Isaiah Thomas Avery Bradley Jay Crowder Amir Johnson at least for now because Kelly Olynyk probably won't be healthy enough for the start of the season and then I think Al Horford will probably start for this team I'm assuming that I'm Pretty, pretty sure he's going to be starting. So Not do, sure if he's good enough. So we're, we're, we know that that's the lineup right now. That's the lineup they've been going with in, in practice so far. How do they manage their rotations going through the first half? Well, I talked about it a little bit before. I think what you want to do or what would be really a cool thing to see is for them to just pounce on teams from the, from the jump because this team is set up where it can play big it can play small. It can play very fast, very tenacious. They have Bradley, Smart, Crowder, those type of perimeter defenders who are extremely versatile and can switch, you know, one through three, two through four. So I think what you want to do is get those three on the floor as soon as possible in certain matchups. So what I like is, as I said earlier, subbing Johnson out early. Uh, at least early in the season, uh, subbing him out early in games, uh, bringing in Smart, and then bringing Johnson back as kind of the backup center. 
Um, I don't know if Jordan Mickey or Tyler Zeller are going to be in the rotation. It's a huge question John. mark. Yeah. It's a question mark for sure. Um, and then Olenek uh, is obviously going to be, he might become the eventual starting power forward, I think. We talked a little bit, a little bit about this earlier, where Olenek and Horford on the floor at the same time, I think, will complement each other very well. I think that will be a nightmare for defenses to deal with. Um, if Olenek, you know, makes a few improvements upon the past few years, um, and if he can rebound the ball a little bit better, that would be wonderful to see. Uh, but yeah, I like this team's versatility. Um, I like the fact that you can plug in a guy like Jonas Jerebko at the four uh, just about any time. And they can maintain that four spacing, either four and floor spacing yeah, I think he's at all in, times. His value to this team is um, overlooked, I think, a little bit just because the lineups you can throw him into. He's obviously more effective at the four than the three, and hopefully they don't play him at small forward too much this season, but... I think they they figured they got to get away from that, and the playoffs showed just how valuable he can be when he's p- playing the four. Right. So, and and I like your I love your substitution pattern idea for Amir. So, we're we're looking at basically the the second quarter where you have Amir when Al Horford is out, and and Horford Horford's in his thirty, so I don't think he's going to be playing all twelve minutes in the first quarter. So Amir's coming back in at maybe like a two minute mark. And then you can you can switch in Jarebko too, so you're keeping Jarebko at the four, Amir at the five, and you're basically getting kind of a very similar look defensive matchup and shooting matchup or offensive matchup wise between what Olenek and Horford how they fit together, and then Jarebko and Amir fit together. Yeah, that's a very good call, and you know, and of course, Jalen at the three potentially, which would be very interesting, or Gerald a, Green. That was what I was about to say. Is I think Jalen Brown's uh, kind of fit in this rotation is a huge question mark and you know if he can play as a rookie on both ends um and not look like he's 19 then that just elevates this team to a completely different level and it's so rare for a third overall pick with his athleticism to join a team that won 48 games this is a i think not too many people are talking about how rare a situation this is and i and i don't know if that's good for Jalen or if it's bad, because if you play on a bad team, you know, you're guaranteed 30 minutes. You get to work out the kinks comfortably. Exactly. You get to basically do whatever you you want for lack of a better phrase. And he is not in that situation. He must make the most of every one of his minutes because if he's not playing well, he's out. Gerald Green will play for him. Um, Crowder, I mean, they're a little bit thin on the wing in my opinion, but uh, there are veterans on this team who will come in, who Brad Stevens trusts. Uh, So, you know, I don't know if that's more or less pressure for a guy who's 19 years old, um, but it would be absolutely fantastic to see him. uh, I think defense might not be uh, as much of an adjustment, as as off as him finding his role on offense, I don't know actually which will be easier for him, but it would be tremendous if if he was an impact player uh, before the All Star break. Well, he his defensive positioning and reading and all that stuff that needs a lot of work because he was struggling with that in summer league, 
And you feel he he was comfortable with the ball in his hands. He would square up a guy. He I think he'll be able to run screen and roll by next year probably. Uh, but the I think I'll, you made a great point there about the being in a unique situation where being on a contending team as a top pick. I think a huge part of why they drafted him, and of course uh, Chris Dunn was not drafted. A lot of the reason because they already had too many guys in that position, and there's no way they're gonna they're gonna be able to squeeze themselves Very out true. of getting another one. Um, was that especially comparing with Dragon Bender, um, Jalen's mental makeup is perfect for a person in this situation. You know, the last the last one I can remember off the top of my head is Darko. And Darko's mental makeup was not right for that situation, which is too bad because if they had drafted Carmelo, it would have been perfect. But, um, and, and people commenting or tweeting on the show, remind me if I'm missing one, if you could think of one, remind me. But I feel like Darko's the last, like, the last, like, top three or four pick that was drafted onto a contending team or, like, high-level playoff team that I can think of off the top of my head. I'm sure there's a few more out there. But Jalen is, like, really sure of himself but has a really good sense of place. And he seems to balance his confidence and his understanding of where he's positioned really well out of, like, the few conversations I've had with him and the way I've seen him present himself to the media and the way that he talks about his work and his priorities and stuff like that. I mean, he, I think he seems like he has... He has an understanding of how his role has to significantly decline now that he's in the NBA compared to what he was doing in college as the big star. But he seems to know how he can contribute, and he knows that he's a great fit for the system. What's good, though, is that he's a guy that's coming in as they drafted him as the best player available. I'm doing air quotes for those listening to this podcast, um, which was still very plausible, of course. But he is a really good fit for this team from a knee perspective and from a playstyle perspective. He fits really. He's exactly the kind of wing that they've been wanting to develop. He's a really. He's a good on-ball scorer, an extremely versatile defender. He he could play offense very similar to what Evan Turner has done, where he's a he's a wing who can run point. I think these are all everything you just said. Not only are they good fits for the Celtics, it's a great fit for the NBA. Every team is looking for a player like this. An athlete who can guard three or four positions on the wing, switch screen and rolls, maybe run a little pick and roll, score, be dynamic in transition. Um, I don't know how good of a shooter he's going to be. I don't watch college basketball, <laughs> so I will admit that from the jump. But everything I read about him and have heard about his situation last year was he was playing on a team that had very uh, limited spacing. And I think that I was just... I was. Talking a little bit about it earlier with Marcus Smart, when you play around better players, life is easier for you, and the game will come quicker. So uh, I think if Jalen is around and on the court at the same time as you know Isaiah and Horford at the same time, um, they run a pick and roll, he can attack a closeout on a kickout and make something happen. Mm-hmm. I think if he can do that, that would be absolutely tremendous in year one. I mean, Jalen was talking about at summer league how he couldn't believe, he, he like wasn't used to how much space he had to move because in the NBA he's it's way way faster, but he actually gets space. And him in transition was awesome. He was fantastic in transition. He's a coast to coast guy. He reminded me a lot of Andre Iguodala. That's I think who they're hoping he could become, um, which would, which would be pretty great. And he might even have more he might even have more perimeter scoring skills eventually than Iguodala has. Then they wouldn't have to sign him next year. Um, that's right. <laughs> Last year, especially with Marcus Smart, and we're going to see Jalen Brown have the same issue, but he's going to be able to improve on it, was that 
Smart's drives weren't really good last year, but he wasn't driving in the space. Their whole problem last year was that teams weren't respecting their shooting, and they were able to collapse, and they were able to overload strong side and stuff like that. So with uh, I think Smart's going to benefit a lot this year from the fact that they're going to have Horford out there. Most of their players that are developing as shooters will probably be better shooters. Um, guys will be healthy, at least for some points of the year. Obviously, guys are going to continue to get hurt. We'll see what happens. But when they have all their guys out there and they're all pretty good shooters, Smart's going to be driving into space. And if you have that lineup where it's Smart, Rogier, Jalen, Jarebko, and Amir, if Rogier is shooting well, like he showed he can in Summer League, Jarebko continues to shoot the ball well, the weak spots for spacing will be Amir, but Amir kind of floats around in kind of the nether regions of the offense pretty effectively. And then Jalen will probably be the weak spot spacing wise, but we'll, we'll see how we can work around it. But their spacing probably won't be terrible for the second unit. And of course, they can keep some starters in there. They'll probably play Smart and Isaiah together in the backcourt a decent amount as well. They'll be able to mix things up. And there's one thing that Steven says well. He's really good at blurring the lines between his first and second units. He's really good at putting together units that are mixing up his reserves with key starters, either on offense or defense. So he makes sure he has someone that can carry the weight on each end for the most part. And that's going to be more tricky without Turner because Turner was really big for that and being someone that they could put some good defensive starters out there next to Turner who could handle the ball well. They're they're really obviously counting on Smart to be that person now. No, and, uh, you know, the loss of Turner and Selinger is the loss of two pretty bad outside shooters. And so addition by subtraction here where you add Horford, who is a guy you can't leave alone, and then, you know, Gerald Green did not shoot the ball. He did not have a good year last year. Um, he was about league average, a little below the year before that. But two years ago in Phoenix, he was um, like thunder and lightning behind the three-point line. He was tremendous. So I think if you can, you know, rediscover or, or kind of get, dig a little bit of, uh, that three-point shooting out of Gerald Green this season. Um, I think there's kind of a, a thing around the NBA where, you know, we're looking at these numbers right now, but NBA players who were in the league two years ago and went up against Gerald Green the night that he dropped 40 and knocked down seven or eight three-pointers, they don't forget that. So when you see him open, like, defenders aren't le- aren't going to just leave him wide open in the corner. So... I think he can improve the spacing, too, for them. Um, and, you know, the more I think about Gerald Green, I, I kind of forget that he's on the team some days, but other days it's like, oh, they have this guy, and I think he can actually really improve the spacing uh, on the court. Don't worry. I forget he's on the team all the time. It's it's really easy to forget. Also, because he was a late signing. So, like, him and Zeller, you almost forgot that they're there. Zeller we didn't even talk about. Well, we kind of acknowledge it. We don't... We acknowledge he exists. We don't... I, I forget where I wrote about this, but I don't. I think Brad Stevens is the only player, person on the face of the earth that knows how much Tyler Zeller is going to play this year. And they they had to give Zeller a lot of money to convince him to come back. I mean, they gave him eight million dollars, and they probably told him, "Listen, you you might you might ride the pine again. We'll try to trade you before the deadline if we have to, or we'll buy you out, or something like that." But I mean, he, he got eight million dollars, so I think he's I think he's pretty content. But he obviously wants to play, and he's frustrated. And he's and he's he's, he's a enough. solid player. He's, he's definitely enough. can play in a rotation for most NBA teams. He's a decent rebounder. Uh, I think he's really good offensively. The good way, pick and roll player. Good pick and roll. He's great hands. Uh, you can run the floor. 
I mean, Tyler Zeller, back when Rondo was on the team, Rondo made Tyler Zeller look phenomenal. And I know they don't have a lot, there's not a lot of people who can pass the ball and be brave enough and bold enough to make the passes Rondo makes. Uh, but Zeller puts himself in those positions by hustling up and down the court, running. He's a great rim runner. Um, Which is why I think he's going to end up on the Bulls later this year. Because Zeller's, kind of, Zeller's the kind of classic player that needs to play on a team with a classic point guard, with a point guard that can rifle overhead passes, slip pocket passes, stuff like that. That's not really the system that the Celtics are running. They don't really have the personnel that really focuses on that. I mean, and there's some, and the big thing with Stevens is they can change up their game plan and their lineup and their dynamics to accommodate for whatever the weakness of the opponent is. That's part of why Stevens is such a great coach. It's, we're so used to it in Boston where Belichick will throw out completely, completely different teams week to week depending on who they're facing because they know how to, they know how to get at the heart of the opponent and they have the flexibility to be able to change their game to get at the heart of the opponent. Right. And, and I think, you know, Zeller's jump shot, allows him to play with other big men who may not be able to uh, space the floor at all. So you kind of have to respect his mid-range jump shot at least out to, you know, 18 feet. Mm -hmm. You're not just giving that to him. But, yeah, it's a testament to Danny Ainge, too, his ability to construct rosters that are extremely versatile, can go small, go big. Um, This team can play two traditional bigs at the same time or a a traditional center and a traditional power forward at the same time and not you know, die on offense, I don't think. Uh, so, um, but I think Tyler Zeller, what he is, is he's, he's insurance, is what he is. I like that. I'm sure he'll appreciate that, too. <laughs> Nobody is. And I, I hope for Tyler's sake, because he's, he's a really good guy, I hope he catches on somewhere at some point where he can be utilized to his potential. Because he's a guy that could have a long NBA career if he's yes, utilized properly. I, I like Tyler Zeller a lot. Yeah, and I, I think he'll probably won't be here next year or even by the end of the year, depending on how things go. Especially because I thought Jordan Mickey should have been getting a lot of those minutes last year. And this year, they're going to have to give him a bigger slice of minutes. He's, I think he's ready to play. But, I mean, obviously Zeller is more matured and well-rounded at this point. But Mickey showed so many flashes against second units. It wasn't even against third units. It was against the second units that he would usually be playing against. He showed an ability to take over a game from the interior. Right. I don't know what the, how much of motivation it will be for a, a team like the Celtics where they don't need to play Zeller to, you know, showcase him around the league, etc. But uh, his contract is really desirable. Um, in a trade. Tell me, what is your approach to covering the team? What are we looking for from Michael Pina? Uh, so I'm not, I wouldn't call what I do uh, beat reporting at all. I don't uh, file columns after every game. Um, I think what I do is, or what Bleacher Report is asking me to do, uh, which is wonderful, is uh, kind of step back every week look at uh, a big picture thing that's going on with this team, a trend, a player who's all of a sudden um, rising, capturing the the pulse of the team uh, at various points in the season um, in a way that a typical beat writer uh, does not do. Um, I think, you know, beat writers are there... Uh, for every game, every practice, which I will be, um, but uh, they are kind of very focused on what happened that night, 
whereas I'm focusing on how does what happened tonight kind of impact the team big picture wise. And so I'm only writing about one column a week, uh, which I prefer. I do not like writing on deadline as most do not, I would imagine. It's less exciting, yeah. <laughs> or it's more exciting, less less desirable. Yes, um, but uh, it's less stressful when you're watching games and you can kind of take notes with a different kind of perspective. So it's fun, and I'm looking forward to it. I love that because it reminds me, and I'm sorry if I'm putting you in this basket and you don't want to be in it, but it reminds me of how Chris Herring of the Wall Street Journal covers the Knicks beat, where he's kind of in the same boat. I don't know if, how frequently he publishes, but it's the same thing where he's the beat guy, but he's not, and it's the Wall Street Journal. So it's like people aren't really going there for their you know game recaps and stuff like that. Um, so he's covering the team from more of a broader perspective, kind of picking and choosing which specific topics he wants to go into or look at things from an outside perspective, stuff like that. And I really, I think it, it gives a great wrinkle to an already oversaturated market. And it seems like you're going to be doing that here and you have a great track record of producing really interesting columns and great content already. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that's an incredible compliment because Chris Herring is one of my favorite writers and um, I try to write about what no one else is writing about, and it's that's very very difficult, as you said. This, the NBA is it has uh, millions of wonderful fans and uh, thousands. It sometimes seems like uh, wonderful writers covering the team, and there's only, you know, there's so many players to write about and so many things happening on the floor. So it's it's difficult to get original, um, but that's what I'm going to try to do. That's great. We need more of that in Boston. So I'm glad you're back in Boston. We're sitting in your lovely living room right now. All right, that's it. Thank you, Jared. No, we're not recording anymore. No, thank you. Oh. It's too late. Okay. You blew it. Well, thank you anyway. Yeah, this is great, man. <laughs> that's going to do it for us here in the Pina studio. We're going to go to a commercial, and when we come back, I'm sitting down with Marcus Smart. Hey, this is Nick Gelso, the founder of CLNS Radio, and I, I just want to take a moment to talk to you about movement watches movement watches if you haven't heard of this company it started by two broke college kids that wanted to wear stylish watches but couldn't afford them so what did they do they started their own company as you know clns radio was founded by a bunch of celtics fans way back in 2009 and from there we started a a company that made a career out of it so we can absolutely relate to the owners of movement watches And let me tell you, I purchased the Chrono Gunmetal Watch. This watch is so sleek, black stainless steel, it's light, it's versatile, it's great for dress occasions or even casual affairs. A little bit more about movement watches, they start at $95. I purchased the Chrome Gunmetal Watch for under $100, and I know with the watch I purchased, you're looking at $400 to $500 in a department store. So... Give yourself a big discount right in time for the holidays. You can get 15% off today with free shipping. And if you don't like the watch, guess what? You can return it for free. All you have to do is go to movementwatches.com slash Celticsbeat. Wait a second. Even the name is cool. It's spelled M-V-M-T, watches.com slash Celticsbeat. Again, go to M-V-M-T, watches.com slash Celticsbeat. All right, so I'm here with Marcus Smart, and I want to talk to you about the work you've been doing under shooting technique, because last time I talked to you about in March, you were talking about how you're trying to get the ball straight up and down, but now you're talking about trying to quicken the dip in your shot. So can you tell me what kind of work you did to kind of quicken and fix the dip in your shot? Um, you know, try to keep the ball above my waist a little bit more. 
you know, um, watching film and looking at it, uh, you know, I got the ball straight up and down. It's just the dip was so low that it was taking a longer time for me to get my shot off. So are you trying to make the shot motion more compact so that you're getting the shot up quicker? Exactly. Perfect. You know, uh, the less <clears throat> the less um, problems I have and less room for error I have in my shot. So what was the process? Uh, you talked about how Alex Barlow and Kenny Graves worked with you to determine the issues you wanted to resolve. So what was the process of figuring out what you wanted to fix and then actually putting that work into action? You know, just kind of getting a, a good feel for it, you know, um, you know, you're trying to fix your shot. If it don't feel right, you know, um, everybody else can tell you how they want you to shoot. Now it should be. But if it don't feel right to you, then uh, it's not going to really pay off. So, you know, I had to find a, a medium between the two to where it felt right. But I was still keeping it above my waist. So were there any other changes you made? No. Because I was, so I went back and watched, watched every shot you've ever taken in the NBA. And the thing I noticed was that it seemed like your release was a little bit late on the peak of your jump. So like your energy transfer was a little off. So is, is by getting the dip to be a little less like kind of long, is it basically you're releasing, you're jumping at the same point, but you're releasing earlier so that you're more in sync with your jump? Exactly. Exactly. Then you got to actually get it down to the T. So, I mean, what, what kind of drills do you actually do to make that work? You know, uh, just start, really, you just got to get up repeti- uh, just more reps, repetition and everything like that, you know, and just getting comfortable with that motion, you know, and uh, building that, 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 that strength in your, your shooting arm to, to make sure, you know, that it becomes second nature to you. So you shoot a lot better off the bounce right now. Pull-up shots, you were shooting in the mid-30s, but catch-and-shoots, you were shooting in the low 20s. So were you primarily focused on working on catch-and-shoots, or were you working on kind of making your shot the same no matter what the scenario? Both, a little bit of both, but more more air to the side of the catch-and-shoots. Because I know a lot of teams are going to play me to where, you know, they're going to force me to take those catch-and-shoots, you know, especially with a lot of guys, Avery, um, Isaiah driving to the paint. You know, they're going to be so locked in on those guys driving. And it's going to open up things for me from the outside. So are you, you talked about wanting to shoot in the corner more, but are you still trying to be more of an off-ball cutting guy so you can shoot above the break primarily? Definitely. You know, uh, obviously everybody knows anybody that the corner shot is the, the easiest. You know, it's a little bit closer. Um, so it's probably the easiest shot, you know, uh, but definitely working on, you know, above the break also. Especially when you're playing as part of the second unit and you have a lot of the primary ball handling duties, do you want to be able to have the kind of pick-and-roll scenario where you could pull up if a team's going under you so that you can be more dynamic? Exactly, you know, keeping the defense honest, you know, with that with that jump shot in mind. So are, are there any kind of like new plays or sets you guys are trying to develop this year to kind of take advantage of that? No, not really. You know, uh, just the same plays, just understanding that teams are going to go under you. So what, what do you think will like define that you really successfully fixed this problem for you? Uh, my shooting percentage, you know, and ultimately it really comes down my shooting percentage, you know, that it helped my shooting percentage also comes down to the, the shots I take, you know, taking good shots and not bad shots, and ultimately that, that'll change. What, like what were the kind of shots you were taking last year that you want to try to cut out of your selection? Uh, quick shots, you know, um, contested shots when I don't have to take them. Um, you know, focusing on getting into the paint first and then, you know, um, getting into a rhythm first before I start shooting those outside shots. I know you, when you were younger, you were doing kind of a one-two step into your shot. Are you trying to use the hop now to kind of keep keep it more succinct? No, I'm still one 2 I'm mixing it up, you know, um, just in different scenarios. It might cost me the one-two. Um, and it might cost me to, to, you know, both feet jump stop into it. But uh, for the most part, and the primary is one-two. So if you feel a defender coming in on you, you'll you'll hop to get it out more quickly. Probably, probably so. 
Now, what about for like when you're driving the lane? I know you, you seem to jump a lot higher when you go off of two feet instead of one. Are you figuring out ways that you can jump off of two feet when you're driving? No. Um, you know, the, the whole thing with me jumping off one was I wasn't explosive because of the knee and the ankle injury. So it, it kind of prevented me from jumping. But, you know, I jump off two to protect myself. Because jumping off one, you know, you really have no control of your body. And if you get hit the wrong way, you know, it could be, you know, it can end you, end your career possibly if you land on the wrong way. So jumping off two is more safer. And it, it seems like that's probably not going to be a problem anymore. No, no, it won't. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. So that's it for Marcus. That's it for Michael Pina. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Celtics Beat. Music for Celtics Beat was provided by Will Rock and Steph Legrateau. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Celtics underscore beat. And you can like Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio on Facebook at facebook.com slash Celtics Beat to keep up with the show. You can find me at Jared Weiss NBA. You can find the Garden Report on YouTube, the CLNS Radio YouTube channel, and all my written content over at Celtics Blog. So I'd like to thank our guests, Michael Pina, and of course, the great Marcus Smart, as well as our sponsors, Blue Apron and American Farmers Network, for making this all possible. For our staff writer, Eddie Santiago, graphic designer, Taylor Arder, CLNS Radio founder, Nick Gelso, executive producer, Larry H. Russell, I'm Jared Weiss. Join us next week for another edition of Celtics Beat, powered by CLNS Radio.